Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome to the History of Sacatvelo, Georgia. I'm your host, Roberto, and this is Myth 2, Medea. We're going to be ending the tale of our lovers, Jason and Medea, with a summarization of Euripides' play, Medea. After our summarization, we'll follow it up with a discussion with our editor, Brendan. So make sure to see our beautiful mugs on YouTube. Welcome back to the campfire, my friends. Take a seat and listen well. Today I shall be ending the tale of our lovers, Jason and Medea. We last left them off with their successful return from obtaining the Golden Fleece of Colchis, landing on the island of Anafe, and throwing a festival on their successful return to their homeland. What happened after Jason returned to Yolkis with the Golden Fleece? Let's find out. Years after the legendary journey, we enter upon a very different world in the land of Corinth. Cries reverberate throughout the walls of Medea and Jason's home. Medea's nurse enters the stage and delivers a monologue lamenting her mistress's grief, cursing Jason for his treachery and wishing he had never stepped aboard the Argo. If it weren't for Jason, Medea would never have persuaded Pelias' daughters to kill their father and caused their exile to Corinth. Medea gave everything she could for Jason, and what did Jason give in return? Why, he deserted Medea and their children to take the daughter of King Creon, Glauca, as a wife in order to secure his bloodline. Medea continued to weep over the broken vows she and Jason made before the gods to always love and be faithful to each other. Out of disgust with Jason, she even refused to see the two children she bore him. Medea's nurse voiced her fears that Medea would not be able to withstand these slights and might be plotting to bring King Creon's and Jason's life to an end. If there is one thing Jason will learn by the end of this story, it's not to betray Medea of Colgis. As the nurse finished her monologue, the children's tutor entered, delivering the news that Creon was on his way to exile Medea and her children from Corinth to make room for Jason's children with Glauca in the royal court, and out of fear of what she might do in retaliation. The tutor even mentioned that Jason did not protest his decision, as old ties give ways to new ones. Medea's sorrow attracts the play's chorus, the Corinthian women, who give their support and join the nurse. Medea's cries morph into a sea of curses against Jason and their mutual progeny, and she petitions the gods to strike her down and end her suffering. King Creon of Corinth arrives at Medea's home, flanked by his attendants. He approaches Medea and informs her that she is now exiled from the land of Corinth, along with her two children. The sentence is immediate, and he wants her gone 
Nell, and will not leave her side with his guards until she is well out of the confines of his land. Medea, ever so clever, knows the reason that she was exiled, but asks the reasoning to buy herself time to decide in her own favor. Creon responds, that he is afraid Medea may mortally injure his daughter Glauke for Jason's betrayal. Creon knows that Medea is an intelligent woman and a powerful sorceress, and it's no secret that she threatened the lives of Jason and Glauke. Medea objects that she is not as clever as people believe her to be, and has no plans of harming him, as he is king and has done no wrong in finding the best suitor for his daughter. She just wants to continue living peacefully among the Corinthians with her children and will remain silent and submissive to her betters if she is allowed to stay. Creon, nevertheless, does not trust her and exiles her as enemy of Corinth. Medea begs to be allowed to stay, but acquiesces to exile in the end. However, she begs for a single day to get her affairs in order and find a way to support her children as she can no longer rely on Jason's support. Exile was only a step above a death sentence in ancient Greece, and although she would not mind exile if she were childless, she would not be able to care for her children outside the protective walls of the city. Creon relents and allows her to stay in Corinth for a day, but threatens that if the morning light touches her the next day, it would be the doom of her and her children. With no time left to lose, she immediately sets to plotting, and comes to the best conclusion she can think of. Her plan? Murder. It's always murder. Come on, Medea. Can't you get a new way to punish people? No longer able to bear the dishonor of Jason's betrayal, Medea plans to leave bodies in her wake as she exits from Corinth. She thinks of several ways to deliver her enemies to the gates of Hades while escaping persecution. But in every scenario she thinks of, she realizes that both she and her children end up dead. She swears to honor her patron goddess Hecate by ruining Jason's new marriage. She steals herself by reminding herself that she is the granddaughter of Helios, the son himself, and that as a woman her cleverness can get her out of any predicament. The chorus, overhearing Medea, adds that men are the most deceitful ones of all, and that women must be paid their due. They point out that Jason dishonored her in her own bed and made her a refugee. She has lost everything, and not even her father's house is available to her for sanctuary. Enter Jason. Jason enters with his attendants and proceeds to say in an overly condescending way how much he tried to help Medea avoid exile, but that her own anger is the cause of her banishment from Corinth. He extends a hand of friendship to Medea and offers to, oh so graciously, provide her and her children with money so that they are not destitute. Jason's words irk Medea even more, and she describes how she aided him in all endeavors. She reminds him that she even committed fratricide to stop the Colchians from catching him. Jason, she points out, will live in luxury in the court of King Creon while she and her children are forced into destitution in spite of the money he sends her. Offended by this, Jason retorts that her love for him was not his fault as it was Aphrodite that blinded her with love. In spite of the fact that he could not have possibly succeeded without her help, he insists that he has done way more for her than she has done for him, because, quote, Firstly, instead of living among barbarians, you inhabit a Greek land and understand our ways, how to live by law instead of a sweet will of force. 
Wrong move there, Jason. You had a chance to make things up with Medea, but you just broke any chance you had. And did you just call Medea's people, the Colchians, barbarians? This is the part in the story where I personally lost any sympathy for Jason. And what else would he like to add to this argument? Oh yes! That he has both Medea and her children's best interest in mind. How could he not take the opportunity to marry into wealth and royalty with Glauke? If anything, if Medea had not made a fuss, she could have remained as his mistress and her children would have had the chance to grow up beside their fully Greek brothers. Yeah, you just dug your grave, Jason. Medea and the chorus of women do not believe this at all. Jason attempts to give gifts to Medea to placate her feelings, but she rejects them. Jason leaves, and Medea is feeling even more scorned now with Jason's absolutely horrible persuasion skills. Remember us mentioning how he would try to be persuasive in the last episode? Yeah, he's not the most persuasive person. Medea's plans of murder have now been solidified, and this will be one marriage Jason will most certainly regret making. Although she is not lacking in determination, Medea has a thing for burning bridges, so she is lacking in allies. Just when she thought she was friendless, the gods sent an ally in the form of Aegeus, king of Athens, who is on the way back from asking the oracle how to best conceive a child. After hearing of his plight, Medea offers to aid him in conceiving a child with his wife, if he grants her refuge in Athens, even if neighboring kingdoms demand her return. Aegeus, oblivious to Medea's nefarious plan, agrees and continues on to Athens. Having found her exit strategy, she begins to scheme once again in earnest. Medea orders the servants to go and find Jason and bring her to him. She'll convince him that she agrees to the marriage and will leave, but he must convince Glauke to tell her father to allow the children to remain. In doing so, she then plans to have her children give a wedding gift to Glauke, the golden robe of Helios and a golden crown, which are both family heirlooms. She knows Glauke will be unable to resist wearing the clothes and laces them with poison to kill the princess. Of course, since her children are delivering the robes, they will perish as well, but robbing Jason of his future seems the best way to inflict the most pain onto him. Jason returns, and Medea gives her apologies, quotation marks, and sends a wedding gift to Glauke along with her children. Time passes, and Medea ponders over her actions. The tutor then arrives and tells her that the children have successfully given the gifts to the princess. Soon enough, a messenger arrives and tells Medea of the success of her plan. Glauke, immediately upon seeing the beautiful robe, dressed into it and felt the effects of the poison. She went weak, collapsed, and burst into flames? I would say that's a horrible way to die, but then again, Heracles died the exact same way. Distraught, Creon rushes to save her, only to also burst into flames upon touching her charred corpse. Well, the plan worked, I guess. Medea then decides to murder her own children, only hesitating for a moment to consider the pain it would cause her, but decides that she would like to inflict as much harm as on Jason as possible. The chorus is upset with the children's pain, but ends up doing nothing to help. Jason, discovering what had happened to Glauke and Creon, rushes over to the family home to punish Medea, only to learn about the deaths of his progeny. He encounters Medea standing over his children's corpses in the courtyard. In a bit of stagecraft, notably reserved for only the gods, 
Medea taunts Jason as she escapes in a flying chariot, like that of her grandfather Helios, to escape from her enemies. Jason, in rage, cries that her children's blood now stains her hands and that he is now childless and will be unable to speak to his children alive ever again. Jason says that the Furies will come after Medea for killing her children, but Medea retorts that the gods do not lend an ear to oathbreakers and deceivers. Jason, using the children as an argument, talks about how much he loved them and how he wishes to be with them once more. Medea, a better wordslinger than Jason can ever hope to be, in disgust says, quote, Now you would speak to them. Now you would kiss them. Then you rejected them. Mind you, this is the first time Jason has even given his children attention in weeks. In anger, Medea prophesizes that Jason will meet a horrible end beneath the mass of the rotting Argo and makes her way to Athens with her dead children in tow. Jason stands in the courtyard, despairing at his loss of the future. Hello everyone! I'm Trevor Cully, host of the History of Persia podcast. From its earliest recorded history, the empires of ancient Persia left indelible marks on the landscape of Sakartvelo. Whether it was fire altars or Roman battle scars, Persian influence was inescapable. The phrase ancient Persia usually makes people think about failed invasions of Greece, but places like Greece and Georgia were at the very fringes of the first Persian Empire. The history of Persia weaves through the stories of Egypt, Babylon, Afghanistan, and even the Bible. And it didn't end with the conquests of Alexander the Great. The heirs to that Persian Empire would go on to reassemble most of Alexander's kingdom, halt the Roman eastward advance, very nearly conquer Constantinople, and act as the nexus of communication and trade between Africa, China, India, and Europe before ultimately being conquered by the Arab expansion of the 7th century. If the stories of ancient Persia interest you, come check out the History of Persia podcast. You can find me online at historyofpersiapodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, like this one. Gamar Joba, everyone. We will begin including mid-episode breaks from now on. I'd like to take this time to talk about the music of the show. So, our normal intro song for the narrative is Khanshi Shesulo Metzhfare, An Old Shepherd, by Kisane. And for the cultural episodes, such as myths, movies, literature, books, etc., the intro will be Aim Tazeda, here it is on the mountain by 33A. Our outro song will remain Tu Ase Turpa Iyavi, if you are so beautiful slash beloved, by Hamlet Gonashvili. I don't speak Georgian, but I am learning, so pardon my translations. I'm trying my best. Now, remember that I do have a website with all our sources on the web as well as great pictures you can look at relating to the podcast. It's also a great way to look us up on social media. It's historyofsacartvelo.com. Spelling will be provided on the end of the episode. Now back to our regularly scheduled podcast.
Well, we now make our way to our discussion about Medea with Brendan. You heard from him last time during Jason and the Argonauts, so let's see what he has to say about Medea. And welcome back to the show, Brendan. How are you doing? You know what? I'm doing fine. Um, I'm mentally exhausted because I was working all day, but other than that, I'm doing fine. I mean, it's Wednesday, so like, weekend is almost here, I guess. Hump day! Yeah, it's hump day. I never understood, like, why, like, I never understood that idiom until, like, I started having a full-time job and was like, oh, you just, you start looking forward to the weekend of the week. Yeah, it's like back back when we were in school, it didn't feel the same as when you start working. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, tomorrow is Thursday, which means it's basically Saturday. Yep. Um, So, yeah, so we're we're back here. We're going to talk about uh, Euripides' play, Medea. So we actually have some discussion points to kind of streamline this because last time we took over an hour and a half with a lot of tangents. Yeah. And also, so, uh, how long is how long is Jason and the Argonauts? It was like it was like four books. Jason and the Argonaut was four books, and in my version of the book, it was about 140 pages. Oh, okay. Well, I listened to the audiobook of uh, Medea on uh, LibriVox. Um, just shout out to whoever does LibriVox for free because I love LibriVox. Um, and that anyway, that took like an hour and forty-five minutes for them to read through it. Yeah, it took me like forty-five minutes to read it. Literally sat down, then like forty-five minutes later, I'm like, oh, that's it. I thought it would be longer. Yeah, I thought it'd be longer too. I guess I'm not familiar at all with ancient Greek drama. Um, I can tell you the plots of a lot of stories because they've been like recounted to me in books about greek mythology but um actual greek dramas i've never studied or read um well well, i can provide a bit of a historical background usually you would have like competitions between writers and um so like they would so that you the plays would show in sets of three so usually you would three writers would be competing to see who had the better play and so this one, Euripides Medea, actually was in that competition and got third place because the Greeks didn't like a lot of what of what went on in the actual play. But it's I think it's a spectacular play. Like, is it? And the best thing is it it all takes place in one place. So like you don't have any scene changes. It just and basically you just have to rely on like the actors and narrators to kind of give you all the information. Yeah, I mean, that's one difficulty I have with plays, actually, is um, I, um, one of my old professors, Dr. Goldstein, who retired, he was, like, giving away all his books, um, and he, I saw it, <laughs> giving away, no, no, retired. he really was, he really was, besides, anyway, if I stole him from his office, he probably wouldn't care, like, <clears throat> professors are always trying to get rid of books, in my experience. But, like, I tried to read The Iceman Cometh, and I'm, like, I'm used to, um, I'm used to, like, the prose of novels. And so, I, I, like, tried to read it, and I just didn't enjoy it, because, like, it was just dialogue. Nobody was describing the scene, except, like, a couple stage directions, which are intentionally sparse. So, 
I guess that's why my experience was better when I was listening to it as an audiobook because they just had to let the dialogue between the actors imply everything. It kind of reminds me of um, reading Macbeth where, um, like, remember the scene where Lady Macbeth is hallucinating a knife that is in front of her? Do you remember that? Yeah, yes. Yeah, and I had, like, I remember reading that for the first time and my teacher had to explain to me um, because I didn't understand what was going on or what she was talking about. Is like, no, you have to, like, basically the actors had to, a lot of the time, imagine what their character would be doing in a scene based solely on the dialogue. There were stage directions and there were props, but a lot of it was up to interpretation of just the the play. Yeah, so basically, so plays are usually left up to interpretation and because especially with the older tragedies, it's kind of hard to see what they mean because you can't go ahead and ask the, the writer like, hey, what do you mean for this part? And a lot of it, usually, you know, they're wearing masks and so you, uh, so that way, so each character has their own mask, so that way you wouldn't identify the actors beneath them, and but you would know which character it was because of that mask. And so one thing that I always found like interesting about just old, older plays is that they're not that fun to read, but they're really fun to like watch, like being performed. It's because like you kind of have to deal with everything going on like in front of you and kind of take it in at once. But I always have had an issue with like more modern renditions of like these tragic plays. And for me, it was like, oh, like I'm a bit of an originalist when it comes to like theater. So like, you know, if it was written, it says, you know, it has to be a certain dress, has to be a certain way, because I don't like it when people start changing stuff from like the historical background of things. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, they kind of have to do that because after a certain time, everybody's seen Macbeth, so you have to... There was one um, reinterpretation of Macbeth, which was just a one-man show, and it was, like, um, one guy playing all the characters, and he was, like, in, in an insane asylum, and he was just talking to himself. Um, I mean, like, the, I mean, the, I mean, there's always caveats, because I've enjoyed... Cause, don't laugh at me, but I really enjoyed the Romeo and Juliet with DiCaprio in it. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's a '90s classic. Did it come out in '90s, like late two? Yeah, like nine, like nine, like late nine, early and late nine. It's, it's from the '90s for sure. Yeah, but that, that was one of my favorites because that was like the first time I ever saw like something like that. But most of the time, it's when it's done. It's I, you know, when I've seen them live, I haven't enjoyed them because I just have my own idea of what they look like but you know that's there's always caveats to what i enjoy and you know sometimes i'll go back and watch you know or go see a play or something that i've seen before and i'm like oh i actually like that this time because you know we evolved with age but i'm just more of an originalist and my roommates will complain about that all the time when i'm like oh yeah no if it's not in, if it's not written in the book you know it's not it's not canon <laughs> but <laughs> well, that's just me but and also with plays there's a lot of like directors have different images and everything but um, let's get off this tangent. <laughs> um, so, um, one of our discuss. So, one of the things. So, well, one of the characters is, as you know, most Greek plays tend to have a chorus in them, which is just a group of people that perform mm -hmm. in the the play. So, and this yeah. chorus, and the role, chorus, chorus, the role of the chorus is like to 
basically tell the audience what's going on. Um, mm-hmm. The chorus like is very passive most of the time. They don't have a, they don't for one reason or another within the story. And we'll get to why the Corinthian women chorus um, aren't involved in the story. Um, they just comment on what's going on, basically. Kind of like your proto narrator. Yeah, basically. Um, and in uh, this, my point here, because we we discussed all these points before the camera started rolling. Um, was that the Corinthian women, I think, have a monologue near the beginning of the play where they uh, talk about basically how hard women have it in Greece. And throughout the play, they're like very... um, They don't like what Medea is doing, but because of her circumstances, they choose not to intervene. Of course, because... They would intervene because they're the chorus, but within the story, the reason given is that um, mm-hmm. it's because um, they sympathize with Medea. And one thing I actually got from that was when they were kind of, there's, I feel like they had some sort of desire to kind of be as brave as Medea was with their own family. Like not go out and like murder everyone, but just kind of stand up for themselves. And yeah. that's kind of like one thing that I saw like, you know, oh, you know, or, you know, we, we agree with you, but, like, you're doing it the wrong way, kind of. The, basically, it was like a moral dilemma with the both of them, between the both of them. Because, like, the course is like, no, no, don't do that. But, like, then they would do nothing. Mm-hmm. But they were like, you know, men deserve it, you know, because men are the worst ones. They're the, like, they're the most deceitful ones. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. They said men are the most deceitful. Um, and that sort of portrayal of women in, in the first place, in Greek mythology, in Greek drama the only other example i can think of that is the trojan women by aristophanes the thing is aristophanes was a satirist so he could kind of get away with portraying women as autonomous but the plot of the trojan women is that um uh all the men in troy refuse to stop fighting or refuse to stop going to war so all the trojan women abstain from having sex with them until they agree to stop fighting um, and again, Aristophanes was primarily a satirist, so mm-hmm. he has some plausible deniability there. You know, the audience goes, oh, haha, women having autonomy, that's a riot. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is why we get into women having autonomy um, in this play, which is like, again, it's Medea being herself. Um, yeah, and this is a tragedy, so it's mm-hmm. not like, you know, everybody's going to be like, oh yeah, it's a, it's a satire, it's like, no, yeah, this yeah. is... No, he's playing it completely straight, so he has no plausible deniability. And this really offended people's sensibilities of what women should be like. Uh, you know, not only should, like, women not get away with fratricide or um, infanticide, <laughs> um, like Medea does all the time, because she just can um (laughs) and she sort of she has the tacit approval of the gods throughout this entire thing because she is kind of not exactly human she has like secret she's a witch and she has secret knowledge of what the god's will is and so like her um is it her cousin is her cersei her cousin or her sister cersei's her aunt right cersei so her aunt cersei 
um, originally purged her of the stain of fratricide. Um, and then was like, get the heck off my island. Yeah, and that was like, get off my island. Um, because she killed her brother in order to escape from Colchis, um, from King mm-hmm. Aetes, her father. Um, and um, at the end of the play, she again gets away with it um she understands that the furies will not come after her and she taunts jason with this he understands the furies will not come after her and the furies are demons of punishment um because they jason is an oath breaker which means the gods won't listen to him when he tells them that medea uh killed his children yeah because he literally made an oath to like be her husband when they got right. married, mm-hmm. and then you know, oh yeah, here's Glauke. Yeah. I, you know, I want to get, I want to be a royal. Gross. Huh? And then they boinked on the golden fleece, which is gross. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, yes, I, I, I would not want that back at any point. <laughs> yeah, no, it was nasty. Um, I mean, romantic, I guess. Um, I brought them together, and now yeah, I don't. I brought want them that. together, <laughs> but like so. Again, all of this, what that means is that the portrayal, the dual portrayal of the Corinthian women as explicitly justifying Medea's actions, even if they disagree with them or downplaying her actions, even if they find them abhorrent. Um, And the fact that Medea is many things. She is, um, she's a foreigner. So she's a barbarian. She's from Colchis. Uh, She is a woman. Uh, she's a powerful witch. She's a schemer, and she's not like a playful trickster figure. She's just in any other place, she would be pure evil. Yeah, and even then, you still get a sense that you know she's pure, like she's evil in this play. You know, she's the bad guy, mm-hmm. but you're seeing it through the eyes of the bad guy, technically. Yeah. But at the same time, you kind of—I don't know. This is more. I'm saying this is more of a modern perspective. But you kind of feel bad for Medea because she's kind of suffering through all, all, all the things, you know. Mm-hmm. One, she has the whole thing where she's a woman. You know, she's a, she's a, she's an outsider of, of Corinth and she's an outsider of Greece in general because she was brought over from Colchis. So people consider her to be a barbarian. And then, then they're also terrified of her because she's a sorcerer or sorceress. I'll use how you say sorcerer, it's easier to say. And, and because she's a sorcerer, so she's able to use these dark magics and so basically people fear her because even King Creon was like, you know, I don't want to, you say all these, all these things, but I don't trust you because you're, you're able to use magic and you hold a grudge. So basically Medea is kind of like this epitome of revenge, basically. So she's like, the, she personifies revenge and like vengeance and just vengeance in general because she's like, she does things to the utmost extremes when she's pissed off. Right. And, yeah. So, like, she kind of personifies that. And, I, and for me, it's like, she's not meant to be the good guy. I don't think anyone here is a good guy, except for probably King Aegeus of Athens, because he's just generally trying to be nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but Medea is like, you sympathize, you, you sympathize with her, especially when you start seeing things through, like, her eyes. And it's like, well, you left me for someone else. You know, you're... You have, I, I'm, you know, I have both your children here, or maybe more, because it depends on some of the sources, and or some whoever tells the story. There might be more than two children. Mm. And yeah, you know, she says in the play, um, "I gave up everything 
Um, mm-hmm. She she basically becomes a nomad. She has no homeland. Um, yeah, yeah, and even after the play, she's she kind of roams around just like Greece in general, and just popping up here and there. Yeah, and she you know she pops up as sort of like um, it's just sort of very generic witch villain who tries to undermine the hero, then gets caught, then runs away, and then rinse and repeat. That's the the role she has in most other stories. I think there's a story involving Theseus where she does that. Yeah, um, yes, exactly. I, I remember shows. hearing it, but um, I, I can't recall which story it is, but yes, she's in one of the Theseus' stories. Right. Um, besides Jason and the Argonauts, because sometimes Theseus is a crew member. Sometimes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, right, and uh, it just overall it just goes to show how different the portrayal of Medea is as a character in Euripides' play versus um, pretty much everything else. Like, she is, she is like a major character in Jason and the Argonauts. Um, she's, um, I mean, she doesn't come into the latter half of the story, but in, in Jason and the Argonauts, she still has, um, actually, no, I guess she doesn't have she, that much autonomy. She has, she has more screen time yeah. than, than she, the crew. Yeah, she has um, power, she has power she, in Jason and the Argonauts, she, but she doesn't always have autonomy. She doesn't always have autonomy because she's, uh, basically sent one way or the other by, by the gods, but... You actually don't see the gods showing up in the play, except for like just them, just random things occurring that work in Medea's favor that makes you think the gods are on her side. Mm-hmm. Which, if you think about it, Jason is technically Hera's chosen, and what is the Hera? What is Hera, the goddess of? <laughs> family. Family. And what did Jason marriage. just do? Yeah, family and marriage. And Jason just did what to his family? Oh, right. Yeah, that's a good point. So Jason just basically broke his family. So you can see why Hera would be, as always, hateful towards people. Because oh. like Jason was, Jason was her chosen. Like this is my guy. Because she hates all the other demigods, but Jason's like, well, he's not Zeus's kid, so I like him. But then he goes and does this, and he. So basically, what I what I see is like a lot of Zeus's kids don't want to act like Zeus, but the ones who aren't Zeus's kids act the most like Zeus. Hmm. That's true. Yeah, so that's um that's just one idea I had. But um let's um but on the topic of like fem um just kind of like how women are portrayed in mm-hmm. in Medea. Um so Euripides, you know, the, the guy who wrote the play, the, you know, was he a proto feminist or was he a misogynist? He because... was a misogynist. I think now now that we talk more and more about it, I think Medea is a story of just having sympathy for the devil. Maybe he just thought it'd be interesting uh, to have a play that shows both sides, basically. Mm-hmm. I don't think the myth... I'm not sure if the myth before this existed. Um, I'm pretty sure the, the myth of Jason the Argonauts existed before, but it was just written down by Apollonius of Rhodes. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we there's a lot of myths out there that were just probably transmitted orally. It's because, just because Homer didn't write it down doesn't mean no one else did. And yeah. we're just, it was just one of those stories. Because you can see it a, a lot of, on the vases, vases, vase, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see, like, the, like, Jason and the Argonaut story, like, on those, like, 
ceramic vases. And so it shows up throughout history, except it wasn't written down officially, like on paper or papyrus, whatever you want to call it, on a scroll until Apollonius of Rhodes. Right. Um, and I think I mentioned, I forget if I mentioned this earlier, but um, I believe that it's argued that what um, Euripides was doing here is he was sort of making a revisionist play. Um, judging by how Medea is portrayed in every other story, and judging how women are portrayed in Greek mythology in general, this sort of portrayal of Medea, I think, is um, Euripides' own invention, or if anything, um, his way of trying to see Medea's side, because normally she just wouldn't, her side would not be seen, period. Um, yeah. what, I, what I like about this is that you see something new as well. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, we've lost a lot of the Greek plays, like, and I haven't read a lot of them, but, like, in my experience, this is kind of something new that you see just just because what a lot of writers do, you know, you want to make something completely new that your audience wouldn't expect, but have them expecting something. Mm-hmm. So, like, it was probably known that, you know, Medea, this happens to Jason and Medea, but, you know, if any, in my opinion, you know, this is in fact, um, most writers would just probably do this from Jason's perspective and give him, like, right. the word. But, you know, yeah, I mean, Jason was the main character of Jason and the Argonauts, no matter how you slice it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in no a name. <laughs> yeah, and that's, I mean, his story ends with him being crushed by the rotting hole of the Argo. Hey, hey, spoilers. <laughs> hmm. It's not like I didn't write something, oh, yeah, you know, he and he meets his end. Yeah, and I think that's it's not that's, like that's a spoiler. <laughs> yeah, and that's written in um, Jason and the Argonauts by Apollonius of Rhodes, right? Uh, I not in my copy. Um, I, oh, the okay. part like the there's like the, I had an introduction part that had like a bunch of like before and after info inside of it as well. Mm-hmm. So I kind of I kind of used that to kind of help supplement when I was reading when I was reading Medea, but like. Um, there's not like one place you can find it. It's just kind of like within other myths. But Medea doesn't prophesize at the end of Medea that he's going to be he's going to meet his doom. So it would have of his ship. It would have been known to the audience. Yes. Um. But on the topic of is Repetes a proto-feminist or a misogynist? Uh. So my take is is the uh, I guess the standard scholarly one. If we're being fair. You could extract anything from Euripides' play to find evidence that he's either. Um, It's definitely unusual to portray women this way. Um, It's definitely unusual to, you know, really have sympathy for the devil here. Um, Because, I mean, one point against it is that you understand Medea's reasoning, but you still also understand that what she's doing it's horrible. Yeah. Uh, and it's also one of those things like you're seeing it from a modern perspective versus seeing it through how the how Euripides and like his yeah. audience see it. And it's like is your is Euripides trying to show something that advances women's rights or you're just, you know, the view on women in general, or is he trying to show like, oh yeah, look at how horrible Medea is, but this would make a great tragedy. Yeah. 
It really is. Like, I, I we say this before, but um, in Georgia, Medea is a really popular name, and everybody knows Medea and loves Medea. But, like, why? Where's the appeal in her character? She's one of us! <laughs> Have you not ever liked, you know, historical figures? Because, like, oh, yeah, he's one of us, you know? Not really, no. <laughs> I mean, like, growing up, at least, you know. I can't really think of any. I can't because you know I'm, I'm American, you know Cuban race, uh, so it's kind of it's kind of hard to. Uh, oh yeah, you know he's American, but like, is he Cuban? Like even like four years ago, four or five years ago, like he, politics and American. I was a big Marco Rubio fan for the exact mm-hmm. same reason. Oh yeah, he's Cuban American. He's one of us. Right. And like you know, and then like once I started seeing his politics, you know, I made my mind up about him after that. I'm not gonna say which way or the other, but. You know, you, you get to make up your own opinions. Yeah, that's tempting. You know, my uh, my mom's side of the family is pretty much rooted in working class Irish immigrants from Boston specifically. Like most of my mom's family lives in New England in some capacity. Um, and the whole family, not really me, I don't care either way, but my mom and her family love JFK. They loved him because he was a catholic yeah so it's, like, it's kind of like that one of us mentality because like mm. it doesn't matter how horrible they were like you know he, it's it's you know it's from our land it's one of us and it's like well okay but like once you start actually looking into like stuff they did like someone who knows what medea did won't be like oh yeah i love medea it's like well she's an interesting character but she's not like someone you should like Look up look to. It, look up to. But like, yeah. Would I totally name my kid Medea after Medea? Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, that gets into my point. Um, uh, I mean, Medea can be a symbol for something beyond what she actually was in the story. Um, one of the points that I read in a paper as I was doing for, um, I was reading for this discussion was that a lot of, Oppressed people in general have identified with Medea because she is the one woman in in a patriarchal society who stood up and took her revenge. Um, she was active instead of passive. Um, yeah, and, so she actually did something instead of just kind of waiting for someone else to do something. Um, right. And I can definitely see how this appeals to Georgians because... Now, I said it last time, I don't want to make Georgians out to be perpetual victims, but they um, are always at the edge of empires, which means they're always, like, getting conquered for a short while, and then those people leave, and then they get conquered again. Even today, after the 2008 Russo-Georgian War, um, Russia is occupying land that most of the international community recognizes to be rightfully Georgian. Um, mm-hmm. so I can positively understand why the Georgians would identify with Medea. Exactly. It's kind of like that whole exoticization from just kind of like, you know, oh yeah, cause it, yeah. Like you lose, like you lose your territory and then like you have people trying to submit their values onto you and essentially it's like, oh yeah, we need to find someone who's within, you know, our story, our history. And kind of get that up to the forefront so we can keep our culture like mm. ongoing yeah i mean that identification with the with what who is normally portrayed as a villain is like 
not uncommon among um, oppressed or minority populations. Um, mm-hmm. uh, like, for example, reclaiming the weird queer and the LGBTQ community. You know, queer used to be a slur, like, maybe 20 years ago, I guess. Even, even uh, up to a few years ago. Yeah, even up to a few years ago. And it's still used that way, for sure. Um, and I, I remember I ran a, uh, at Juniata College, I ran a radio show um, um, called um, Out of Step, and it was all about punk rock and heavy metal. And I introduced... Um, a couple bands. I think it was Limp Wrist, which is a band of all gay men, uh, as being in the queer core genre, as in queer hardcore punk. Um, and my station manager was like, "Do you really want to use that word?" And I had to explain to them, like, "Well, no. This is the name of the genre, and they tell people to call them a queer core band." Like, I don't know how else I would introduce. Um, I don't know how else I would introduce the band. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so basically it's about, it's all about reclaiming kind of like what's yeah. yours and that way people can't use it against you because, you know, how, how can you use something against someone mm-hmm. that, you know, they already claim to be, essentially. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. you know, it's kind of like you can't use Medea against us because Medea is one of us. So it's like we're going to back her up no matter what, even like, because if some, because I, I'm not. I can't speak for the Georgians, but I can speak for myself as an American. If someone came up to me, came up to me and was like, "Oh yeah," because Teddy Roosevelt was came to Brazil for a while. He's Brazilian, you know. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. he, you know, he's he's ours, and it's like, no, like he's from he's from the U.S. So Teddy Roosevelt's like one of us. You can't take, you know, someone from our land and just say they're yours just because they lived there or they were there for a while. Mm-hmm. Which is weird because, again, Medea is portrayed as not having a homeland. As having betrayed her homeland, actually. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, not that Teddy Roosevelt did, but, like... Right. We're not going to talk... It's my favorite president. We're not going to talk smack about Teddy. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, okay. But, you know, Medea, in the end, it's just a story, and people can... Yeah. You know, sto- stories can change over time. Medea can transform from, a cl- like, uh, a clear villainess to an anti-hero, to, you know, a full-on symbol of struggle against oppression. Hmm. Um, And, you know, even if Medea really, again, realistically, I don't think Medea is a hero in, nobody's a hero in this play. It's Um, a tragedy. Yeah, no, it's a tragedy. Right. Um, I, I mean, okay, even technically Macbeth is a tragedy and there's a hero of Macbeth. I Macbeth. Think yeah, Macduff, right? Um, Whatever his name is. Yeah, Macduff, because uh, I don't know. I I'll, because I remember it because I always like the scene with the weird sisters with the um, mm. with the vision they give him. But anyway, we'll get to witches later. Um, well, actually, we can just do it now. We can, um, do, we can get to witches now. Now they're thinking about yeah, witches. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, the paper I was reading. Um, Again, it acknowledged, like, realistically, Euripides is not a proto-feminist. Um, but you, I mean, you're still allowed to look back onto the character of Medea and see her as a proto-feminist icon, if you want. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, there's nothing wrong with just that. Be, just because Euripides didn't mean to do that doesn't mean, like, 
you can't because like yeah. just because someone didn't mean to do something like doesn't mean you like you can still do it because like sometimes like you know if you if i say something you take it the wrong way like it's kind of hard for me and, and lots of people start taking it you know the the way i didn't mean to mm -hmm. be for it to be taken it's like well that's just their interpretation of it and all because someone wrote something something a certain way doesn't mean like they should be taken that way yeah or even what I do, a lot of the time when I watch a movie, I have a lot of thoughts about it and I like to write it down. And most of the time I look it up later and realize that my interpretation is off. But I... How is it off if it's your interpretation? Well, I guess, I mean, well, if, if I interpret something as like, okay, um, uh, I don't know, my interpretation of Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut is that it's about um par paranoia and conspiracy theories um or yeah it's about par uh, paranoia and conspiracy theories and i could find out later like you know kubrick didn't really think of things that way it was like okay fine maybe i was factually incorrect about kubrick's interpretations or kubrick's intentions when he was making it but i still like to use it as a jumping off point to talk about things you know or mm -hmm. you could you can even just go, just get a you know, complete cop out and say that he did it unconsciously, because then nobody can say, nobody can prove you wrong. <laughs> exactly. Well, back to the witches. Medea is a witch or sorceress, whatever you want to call her. Depend if you play D and D, there's a clear difference. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, the words are basically interchangeable, um, and just like Medea is a pretty clear either villainess or anti-hero who's later reinterpreted as a feminist icon we do pretty much the same thing with all witches nowadays the two movies i can think of off the top of my head neither of which i've seen but i know they exist are um the craft which i can't which is like a i remember it's like a, a aggressively 90s movie <laughs> um and the other was the Witches of Eastwick, which I saw part of on TV when I was like a kid. And I, what I remember from that is that Jack Nicholson plays Satan in that movie, which is pretty cool. As he, as he should. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, he was a great Satan. Um, he uh, he actually, he comes off as like an extremely nice guy in um, interviews and behind the scenes footage. I was looking at behind the scenes footage for The Shining. Um, the other day and he comes off as extremely nice and polite i don't know if it's how he really was in real life um but he's really good at turning on like the evil like that um, yeah uh yeah so you were talking about the 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 craft and the witches of eastwick right the witches of eastwick so like of course we all know what witches are in the classical sense Everybody knows about the Salem Witch Trials. Everybody knows about the Wizard of Oz. Everybody knows about... Uh, what's another evil witch in fiction or literature? Uh, Narnia. Yeah, Narnia. Why not? I love Narnia. Uh, yeah, I have all your books here. <laughs> yeah, no, I sent, sent them over for Christmas. Um, I sent you that history book, too, about the... Cherokee. Yes. Yeah, I forgot if I ended up sending that one. Yeah, you did. I have it in my bookshelf. Okay, cool. Um, but anyway, um, so this is how witches are classically portrayed. They're emissaries of Satan, um, or they get their power from Satan. 
Um, for evil. Yeah, they use it for evil. They kidnap children and eat them or use them to make paste or ointment for which with the, the fly, so on and so forth. But like, um, I guess in the first place, um, in the craft, I understand that their powers are based off the real life relig religion of Wiccanism. Um, and I don't know, that's how the director wanted to say they get their powers from. And all the movie is based on that. Yeah, I don't know how I don't know how much Wiccans appreciate um, that portrayal. I doubt they care, or they just love it. I, my guess is, since it's sort of like a, I don't know if it's a counter. It's not. I don't know if it's countercultural movie, but it has like a really hot goth girl in it. So, <laughs> I guess that's enough to count as countercultural in today's day and age. Yeah. Uh, um, but actually, one thing at one point I didn't want to bring up before I forgot about it was you can kind of see like. The witch kind of being like, you know, the woman in power who is just uh, essentially kind of, because she's in power, she's being portrayed as evil. Yeah, basically. That's how it was with Medea. Yeah. And like, and that's how it was with Medea, because, you know, she she has these, she has these things, she's able to like make potions and like use magic. And she's, so she's seen as evil because while everyone, all the other women can't even do that. So, they, you know, they're passively good. But in like in um, serious, like Wizard of Oz, you know, you have the two evil witches, one of who dies at the beginning, and then you have the two, like, good witches of the north and mm -hmm. south, or I might be getting my directions mixed up. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but, even like, then, even then the good witches are, like, very minor characters. They're very like, minor they characters. Have, they have no autonomy. Yeah, they, no, they basically just follow whatever, and then still, like, Oz is ruled by yeah. Oz. Very, you're like... They're, they're very aloof, which is like, it serves a story because Dorothy has to do everything herself. Otherwise, the movie would be incredibly boring. Um, but but even she still has her companions are the ones who do a lot of everything. Yeah, but they learn a lesson. That's true. Actually, yeah, Dorothy is extremely passive in that movie now, I think. Now that I think about yeah. it. But it's great when you watch it with Pink Floyd in the background. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, man, that, that was a really psychedelic movie. Yeah, but basically, yeah, like, Dorothy has no autonomy. The only character with autonomy that's a female is the the Wicked Witch. Right. And and even then, it's in a name, the Wicked Witch. So, yeah. so they're still portrayed as evil, and even if the good witches are just kind of, mm -hmm. they just kind of, there's like a fairy godmother-esque kind of character. Right. So they're either kind of there to, like, kind of help along, like, with the, with everything, and they have no autonomy, because, you know, they're there to help the main character. But then you have like the 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 good, you know, the the evil woman who's who you know who wants to, who wants to rule everything and have her own power over stuff, mm -hmm. and, she's, and she's the evil witch. Right, and so, all of this is a really apt metaphor, um, or I think it was intended that way, unconsciously or not. It was all an apt metaphor for um, how threatening powerful women were, um, in out of the societies which these works of fiction were coming um it, it, um it actually reminds me of like one of the lines Medea says is like you know there's nothing uh more dangerous than uh scheming like scheming women i i have it written yeah. down here so um yeah i mean it's i wouldn't be surprised if that's the originator of the idiom hell hath no fury like a woman scorned um so we were talking about uh 
Well, anyway, I guess so. This, of course, what we're all saying here is the standard feminist interpreta reinterpretation of witches. And that was the point behind the craft and the witches of Eastwick and all feminist reinterpretations of Medea, um, which is that, well, of course, men would portray powerful women like that um, because it's threatening to their society, you know. Um, and, and generally speaking, Medea checks all of these boxes. She's a foreigner, so that's threatening to Greek society, which shows she's a barbarian. Yeah, so uh, she's, as, you, as you mentioned in the last discussion we had, she's basically a very exoticized character. Right. So, so like, and because she's exoticized, she's, she, she doesn't have a homeland in Greece, but she can't return to her own homeland, which is actually one thing that is mentioned multiple times in the play Medea. Is that you know I have no you know she I have no sanctuary because I can't even return back to my father, right? And I you know I can't and I'll be destitute anywhere I go in in Greece in basically Greece because I have no one to turn to. Yeah, if anything, this play is uh, kind of a cautionary tale because it really isn't until it really isn't until Medea is banished from Corinth that it becomes a self her, um king Aegis what's his name who's the king of Corinth Creon Creon it's not until king Creon he well he makes a self-fulfilling prophecy by banishing Medea from Corinth because now she has nothing to lose she has no homeland um being exiled in ancient Greece is not quite a death sentence but it's pretty close because you need protection from the wilderness within the walls of a city-state like Athens or Corinth or uh, or Colchis. Um, yeah, and basically because because even Medea even herself said, "Don't banish me. I will be quiet. I will be submissive to my betters. Just don't kick me out of Colchis or out of yeah. Corinth." Well, and Corinth knows it, that she's lying. Well, she might not have been. We don't. We don't know. Like. Like she, she would have just probably stayed. She would have probably done something to just, just to Jason. But like, mm. but Korean can always find a new daughter, a new suitor for his, for Glauca, his daughter. So like, she might have done something to Jason. Cause she's so pissed off at him. But like, who knows? But she was threatening Glauca and Jason. So who knows? She would have, knowing Medea, she would have done yeah. something actually. <laughs> right. Um. But anyway, so Medea checks all of these boxes of things which are generally speaking threatening she's a foreigner um she's she's an ultra foreigner because she has no homeland um which is also this is the thing that gives her power because she has nothing to lose mm -hmm. um so she's a nomad um she has no loyalties she's well you know not even to her own children um she, so she has no loyalties to the social order whatsoever um she's a powerful woman who will assert her own will uh at the cost of everything at the cost of social ties at the cost of safety um and she's also not exactly human um she's like a quarter god basically yeah yeah no normally demi being a demigod um gives you an immense amount of power um but Medea is 
a scary character. She's the priestess of Hakate, um, which we mentioned last time. Hakate is um, a goddess of magic. Um, I think her parents are like the knight and Tartarus or some other quote-unquote evil god. Um, Mm -hmm. She's basically the, like, the... She's the uh, antithesis to Apollo, essentially. Right, yeah. And she's the goddess of crossroads. And what is a crossroad? It's a place where you don't know which you're making a choice. And making choices are scary. It's liminal. Well, actually, in in most depictions of Hecate, you also see, like, three figures. Three women figures. So So she's also... You know, she's also a goddess of change. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are all, again, all things that all human beings generally find threatening. Um, you know, she, you know, it makes perfect sense that Medea is a nomad with no loyalties. Um, because Hikate herself has a ambiguous characterization. Mm-hmm. Um and that's really what her characterization is ambiguity itself. Yeah, and it goes back to also Hecate is a witch as well. Yeah, she's the goddess of magic. So essentially, the, you can see already that the Greeks were just kind of putting women to this whole, oh, you know, Hecate is evil because she does magic, so evil women do magic. Yeah. Kind of thing, and it's already kind of like, it's, it was already ingrained in their, in their system. And since we took a lot from the Greeks just over the years, over the centuries, millennia yeah um it just kind of makes sense yeah so you get like you know you get like a checklist of um you know checklist of qualities that are applied to evil characters um you know darkness ambiguity femininity um um rootlessness in terms of um well rootlessness i guess also is just ambiguity said twice um, um, but the final point is that Medea has, again, many divine qualities. Um, at the end of the play, she escapes in a flying chariot. Sometimes it's drawn by serpents, sometimes it's drawn by dragons, depending on the source. Um, and that sort of stagecraft is normally reserved for a god. That's where this term deus ex machina, god on a crane, comes from you know because that's how a lot of greek dramas ended um once all these problems started piling up a god would come in and just fix everything through to their divine power obviously that doesn't happen here in the play but nevertheless um medea gets her own deus ex machina ending where she plays the part of a god um Mm -hmm. so she could almost say she ascends to godhood once she lets go of all of her ties that made her human, like her loyalty to Corinth, her loyalty to her children, and her loyalty to Jason. Once all her ties are gone, she ascends to godhood. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, she has somehow access to divine knowledge. She taunts Jason by saying, I know the fears aren't going to come after me because the gods will never listen to an oathbreaker. So she knows what the loopholes are in the rules. Um, just like her aunt Cersei did, like she was just able to wash away her fratricide, which is the the 
the cardinal sin of ancient Greece is fratricide. Cersei just washes it away. Um, you know, I mean, I guess, briefly aside, I also like Cersei a lot as a character, too. Mm-hmm. Um, because she's a witch, and she, like, turns um, Odysseus's men into pigs. But he also just, like, stays on her island for, like, how many years just to be with her? Well, I thought he, I thought he was forced, or was that with Calypso? I think he stays voluntarily with Calypso. I'm not sure. I think he's... It might be the reverse, but we're not here to talk about Odysseus. But it might be. I think he said. I think he was forced to stay with Calypso, but he kind of just stayed with Cersei. But he was. He might have still been faithful to his wife. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, this whole time Penelope has been rejecting suitors this entire time. Uh, well, um. So yeah, now um, I think we're getting close to the end here. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the last point was, uh, yeah, you know, after reading Disney Argonauts, I was like, okay, Jason, you know, you have a chance of still getting on my good side. Yeah. Then I read Medea, and I'm like, uh, Jason, you are a horrible person. You know, you cheated on your wife and your deadbeat father. Mm-hmm. And I love what Medea said to him at the end. It was like, oh, now you love them. Now you want to kiss them. Then yeah. you did it. And I was like, Oh, I can hear, like, my mom yeah. saying that to somebody. <laughs> yeah, that's probably one of the greatest roasts in um, the history of literature. Yeah, I was like, Yo, you, you, now you would do all that, but now that they're dead, you do, like, you, like when they were alive, you didn't want to do anything with them. Like, you just wanted to be with, you know, this uh, royal princess over there who's, you know, who's not that smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and you know, he says, like, uh, what do you say? he says something about and now you left the land of barbarians and dwelt among the Greeks. Aren't you grateful? Something along those lines. Yeah, literally. And it was like that was, oh. the, that was the point where I completely checked out of having any sympathy for Jason. I was like, oh, you know, you you chose to do this, like, uh... and it, even then, before he's like, oh yeah, the gods, made, you know, forced you to love me. Yeah. So like, you know, no biggie. So it's not my fault you love me. The gods forced you to. And I was like, okay. And but if the gods forced her to do that, you know, it must be it must mean something if the gods forced made it happen. Right. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's a whole theme of Oedipus Rex, but we'll not get into that. Uh, but uh, I mean, notably, Jason is like you know, Jason has like a totally unsympathetic betrayal. But this whole thing could have been avoided if he just said that he needs to guarantee his line. You know, he would still be an oathbreaker, but maybe this whole thing could have been avoided. Uh, maybe Medea wouldn't have murdered his children. Um, who knows? But if he talked to his wife, yeah, I know, you know if he started doing anything. Communicate, you know, this is the key to relationships. It's communication. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So... And, like, I don't know, because, like, even then, like, my dad would probably still be pissed off. He's like, you still want to leave me for that person? You know, I killed your uncle. I had your uncle killed for this. And then, like, because she, you know, it briefly mentioned Medea, but she basically forced, like, Jason's cousins, Pelias' daughters, to kill to kill Pelias. Mm-hmm. Or, like, she kind of, she, she didn't force him to, but she was like, oh, yeah, look, you, you see this, like, potion that I used to, like, make the sheep look super young? Yeah. She totally used it on your... On your dad to make him young yeah. again. Well, but, you know, maybe the gods shouldn't have made those kids so stupid. Right? 
<laughs> it's like you know literally she's married to the guy who wants your dad off the throne you're going to believe her okay who's Pelias again Pelias is the king of Yolkis or uh, Jason's uncle oh okay yeah um, but yeah he, he got killed by his own daughters oh right no sorry that wasn't in uh, that wasn't in Medea that was in Jason and the Argonauts it wasn't in my copy so I was kind of I'm kind of pissed off that it doesn't didn't have that ending, because they kind of like finished off in like the city, like the island of like yeah, one of the islands, and they throw a festival, and then it's like all right, game over. I'm like, what? Yeah, I swear there's more to this. You can tell that um, Apollonius of Rhodes didn't want to make it a sad ending because, uh, I mean, okay, yeah, there's fratricide, but then Medea. I mean, the eternal motif with, like we said in the summary, is that the eternal motif with Medea is, so what's your plan? Murder. The plan is murder. Yep. All right, Brendan, I think we're going to end the uh, our discussion here. It was a pleasure yeah, to have you. So. Yeah, it was, really well, it was good to be back. Uh, yeah. We'll see you next week. We'll see you in two weeks' time for uh, Mirani. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I'm excited for this one because I don't know anything about it, so... Yeah, so um, just just a quick thing for everyone. Amirani is going to be like the actual first like Georgian thing we talk about. That's not just like oh yeah, random. You, you know, here's the the Colchian tribe, and here's this tribe, and here's what we don't know, and here's what we know. It's like oh no, actual like we get an actual person we get to talk about that is you know that's in in Georgia and the land of Georgia. The whole story takes place in Georgia. I'm excited because it's actually something like outside of Greek stuff and it's actually like a creation myth kind of thing and it's actually like Georgian mythology. Yeah, sweet. I would I would love to learn a lot more about Georgian mythology, so I'm looking forward to <clears throat> getting that script. Yeah. Uh yeah. Uh, so thank you thank you for coming on and we'll see yep. you in two weeks time. See you in two weeks. Brendan, once again, thank you for the enlightening discussion. I can't wait to finally go into the Georgian Prometheus, Amirani, with you next week. That will be our last myth episode before returning to our narrative. As I've mentioned before, if we're not on any streaming service, please let me know and I'll attempt to get onto it. If you do have anything you want to say, feel free to look us up on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram as The History of Sacarvelo, Georgia on Twitter at history underscore Georgia, on our website at historyofsacarvelo.com, or on our email at thehistoryofsacarvelogeorgia at gmail.com. Sacarvelo is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L.